Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon on our program today, Vaccines versus Variants. The Premiers and I had another productive meeting. We talked about vaccines, testing, and what we can do to beat this third wave. We also talked at length about borders. 90% of our cases right now, you go back to the variants. And I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that we keep our, our borders uh, uh, closed and, and work with the federal government to make sure they, they don't come in. Should the federal government be taking tougher measures at the borders as dangerous variants continue to spread? Or is community transmission still the main issue? And will you need a vaccine passport? The Health Minister Patty Haidu joins us today. And then, military mistakes. The minister, my office, knew there was a complaint against General Vance. Nobody knew that it was a Me Too complaint. Does the government really need a new investigation into sexual assault in the military after the recommendations of a similar report six years ago have gone unfulfilled? And who knew what when about the allegations of misconduct against Canada's former top soldier? The Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan joins us on that. And then the former Canadian Forces Ombudsman Gary Walburn, who says the government ignored his warnings, joins us on the scrum. Plus, free speech. Why is the Prime Minister trampling on the rights and freedoms of Canadians? And why is this minister choosing to mislead Canadians? We've said from the beginning, when we introduced Bill C-10, that user-generated content would be excluded, but that online platforms would, who act as, as broadcasters would be included in the legislation. Is the federal government really about to regulate your social media? Why does the opposition argue your free speech is under assault? Is it? MPs are here to debate that. All that plus paid sick leave. Should the government step up again and help the provinces? This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Well, it's the only race that matters, the vaccines versus the variants. And even though the vaccines are now coming into Canada by the millions, two million coming this week from Pfizer, more from Moderna finally, the first arrival of the one-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and even as provinces like Ontario and Quebec are lowering the age of vaccine eligibility, 18 plus in May, it's all too late to stop the third wave from ravaging much of the country, a wave driven by the deadlier international variants of the virus. The military is now helping out in Nova Scotia and Ontario. Heavy restrictions remain in BC. Alberta is on COVID fire in the north and in cities like Calgary. Much of the country is in danger. And where did the variants come from? Well, obviously through the borders. And that's why some premiers are asking the prime minister to take tougher border measures. On the other side, the United States is starting to open up, raising another question. Will Canada roll out a vaccine passport, both for international and domestic travel? Let's find out. Hi, right, joining me now is the health minister, Patty Heidi. Always a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, let's talk about border restrictions. As you know, premiers like Doug Ford in Ontario want much stronger border controls, not only at airports, but at roads. I know you keep saying that the number of travel-related cases are low, less than 2%, but Minister, the variants have got here through travel. These are international uh, um, variants that come in through travel. Is it disingenuous to suggest that travel-related cases have had a minimal impact on the multiplication of the spread? Well, listen, uh, Evan, what I can tell you is that we are seeing some of the lowest travel volumes that we've seen really in a very long time. 
And in fact, the majority of travelers now would be considered essential travelers. Those are the workers that are crossing the borders for a variety of different reasons. The truck drivers delivering our foods, the uh, uh, critical service infrastructure workers, the healthcare workers that sometimes work in a variety of different ways uh, across the border. And so, um, you know, at this point, that represents almost 80% of all travel. But Minister, I I'm gonna read you from an epidemiologist, Colin Furness. He said, consider that every single case of the B117 variant, which is crashing our healthcare system, is a travel attributable case. The variant came on a plane. And he said that your government, I'm quoting him, has a quote, disastrous misunderstanding of the relationship between travel and communicable diseases. A small percentage of something is catastrophic because it quickly multiplies. In other words, yeah, a few cases, but the variants are different. They multiply. Most cases in Canada now are of the variants. They came from travel. Isn't that an indictment of the current border system? Well, I mean, I, what I'd say is across the country, we see very different epidemiological patterns, and we're all in the same country. So on the East Coast, as you know, uh, many of those provinces have done, you know, extremely well. And they've done extremely well because they've taken this virus, as you know, every step of the way extremely seriously. Look at Nova Scotia, 80 cases, and indeed they shut things down so that they could get a handle on things. What we know about the variants is, yes, uh, some of these variants are more infectious, but what works for COVID works for the variants as well and so the modeling has always predicted that if we let go of the measures too quickly that we would see a surge in cases in fact very early modeling last year showed that and that's what we've seen and so we've got to stay low, laser focused on reducing transmission in our communities that's where the gain is now but but miss i gotta push back your example actually cuts the other way there are no international flights landing in the atlantic provinces and guess what they have the lowest number of variants uh, other provinces had flights and border crossings. They had the variants. A lot of those provinces also had the same social distancing measures as the Atlantic provinces. Isn't the Atlantic provinces, the Atlantic bubble, I know they're suffering in Nova Scotia now, but isn't that example of exactly this? No international flights, tighter borders, fewer variants. What I'll say, uh, Evan, is that, as I said, now what we are seeing in terms of travel is the large volume being related to essential travel. And these are the things that keep Canada running. We've always known that we would need to have some degree of travel at our border to keep our country running. And we have some of the strictest measures in the world, Evan, and that's why you are seeing really a non-essential travel at its lowest levels ever. We've got hundreds of thousands of people still crossing the border. Yes, some are essential. Truck, I get that. But a lot aren't. People, and you know that. You've seen the evidence. I know some is anecdotal, but some is data-driven. What's essential? Why are people flying to the U.S.? Premiers are saying, stop it. Shut it down. Do like the Atlantic province. If you've got hundreds of people, hundreds and hundreds on 65 international flights, at this point when speed matters, when the variant is a different disease than the first phase, and we're getting overwhelmed here, at what point do you, as the health minister says, shut it down? What I will say is this, Evan, we need to stay laser focused on where people are getting sick and they are getting sick in community. They are getting sick in at work. They are getting sick in crowded housing situations. That's where people are getting sick. And we need to work together at all levels of government as we have been doing to stay laser focused on that. Reducing transmission, 
getting people vaccinated so we can save lives, stop the spread. And that's the work that we've been doing together. We can't get distracted. Right. We have to stay focused on but what's the, going to actually sure, sure. work, which is reducing transmission in community. I want to just quickly go to vaccine passports. I know the EU is proposing a digital green certificate to allow EU residents to travel across the block. They've also signaled to the U.S. that fully vaccinated Americans may be able to travel to Europe this summer. Uh, Canada is not on that list. Uh, how, the Prime Minister's hinted, we're going to get on this. How close is Canada to giving us the details of a vaccine passport? We're working with international partners now, um, Evan, as you know, the world is trying to figure out how to restore international travel. We're not the only ones having conversations about borders and what they mean and how to protect citizens from the importation of the virus. And so that conversation is very alive at the G7 table, at which I said I met with my G7 counterparts this week, as a matter of fact. And um, the consensus is that we need to have some sort of common way to be able to uh, quickly credential people's certif right. certification of vaccination. We know there are a lot of different kinds of vaccines around the world and we want obviously Canadians to be able to participate in international travel so I can reassure Canadians that no matter what those requirements will be we'll have Canadians ready when the time is right to travel of course it's a good reminder to say now is not quite ready not quite the time yet okay just and I'm going to pick up on when we're going to find out that time is but minister uh, what about domestic travel will there be a an, a domestic uh vaccine passport, to go to concerts, to go to federally regulated spaces, to move from inter-province to province? Will the federal government impose a, uh, a vaccine passport domestically? No, there's no intention to impose a domestic uh, vaccination passport at the federal level, but I will remind uh, people that uh, certain settings will require vaccination as they always do. So, for example, schools require certain childhood immunizations. Some universities and colleges may require vaccination. There might be requirements for certain workplaces, and those are all, as right. you know, determined at local and provincial levels. You know, people are frustrated. They need some actual tangible targets. They're looking at the United States, where the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, issued a comprehensive guidance on what people who have been vaccinated, as millions of Canadians have done already, what they can do. Uh, you know, they said public health recommendation for fully vaccinated people. Uh, they've been told they can resume domestic travel without taking a test, for example. They no longer need to self-isolate after arriving back from an international destination. Why can't Canadians have that same guidance? Uh, well, listen, the Canadian um, approach is to be, uh, you know, very certain that we are uh, working with provinces and territories to understand their own epidemiology. Of course, it's two things, uh, Evan. It's the, the percentage of Canadians that are vaccinated, and it's the extent of disease that's being transmitted in communities. We will have guidance out for Canadians very shortly about what they can do with one dose or two doses of the vaccine. All right, uh, Minister Hyde, I got to leave it there. Always good to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Evan. Take care. All right, coming up, is the federal government about to regulate your social media? Opponents of the government's controversial new Broadcasting Act are calling the legislation an attack on free speech. Is it? We'll break that down with the Liberal Parliamentary Secretary of Heritage and opposition critics. Stay right here with Question Period. The Liberals are trying to give themselves the power to control what Canadians can read online, what they post on social media, and the videos that they watch on YouTube. Again, it's wrong. Why is the government doing this?
what we're seeing now is, you know, these are big, powerful, in fact, some of the wealthiest corporations uh, on the planet. And clearly, uh, the, the member opposite and, and, and her party are just afraid to stand up to them. So is your social media about to be regulated by the federal government? Will new legislation really give the government the power to crack down on personal content? Well, that's what the opposition and many experts fear. After the federal government made a surprising change to the new broadcasting bill that's meant to regulate the web giants. Let me just give you some quick background. The legislation, it's called Bill C-10 if you care about that kind of thing, is intended to regulate big web giants like Netflix or Amazon Prime in the same way that Canadian media companies like Global, Bell Media, which owns this station, and CBC are regulated by the CRTC. But just over a week ago on a Friday afternoon, the government took out a clause in that bill that made an exemption for user-generated content. In other words, the stuff you and your family members or friends might upload to, say, Instagram or Spotify. Why did the government get rid of this key exemption? The government says this will only apply to professional content, this bill, not your personal social media stuff. Does this legislation actually pose a threat to freedom of speech? Why do the NDP support it? We're going to find out now. Joining me now are three MPs. Julie DeBruzen is the Heritage Parliamentary Secretary. Eric Duncan is a Conservative MP on this. And Heather McPherson is the NDP's Heritage Critic. Good morning to all of you. Um, Julie DeBruzen, let me just start with you. Why did the government get rid of what many regard as a legal safeguard that will ensure Canadians that user-generated content will never be regulated by the CRTC or the federal government? And, well, and I'd like to start with that because, in fact, I, I want to be clear that earlier, as we were going through the bill, we actually confirmed a section that specifically protects and, and excludes user users from being covered by the Broadcast Act. So what we're really talking about here is social media giants. We are not talking about individuals who are uploading posts to social media. Uh, but... What, when we came to the part about should we create a blanket exemption that would mean that whenever a social media company might act as a broadcaster, that we would still exclude them. What we heard from particularly the music industry was that this would be creating a blanket exception that was too large and that right. in the case where a social media company is in fact acting like a broadcaster, that they should be treated like all other broadcasters. Right. So the concern, Mr. Duncan, is that, you know, in making this exception to the music industry, which are worried about streaming on things like Spotify, that now the floodgates are open, that the language is not precise enough and it can be applied to Twitter or Facebook. What's your uh, legal concern here? Well, there's a huge government overreach in this, Evan, and I, I think of all the issues in my limited time as a new MP, I've been hearing from tons of constituents and people across the country. We're seeing journalists, we're seeing professors that have a strong background in this. There's a ton of concern everywhere. The, the, to Julie's point, there's a blanket policy the other way of opening up and being so vague in general in this legislation that it can open the door, pass it over to the CRTC, the independent government body, and there's been a lot of challenges and frustrations over the year, but it's opening a huge can of worms. The government needs to focus on the big tech and those aspects, not on a teenager that's posting on TikTok or on Instagram. Huge overreach, and I think they're seeing, uh, and they're certainly feeling the heat in the past couple of weeks as more Canadians are aware of this. Ms. McPherson, I know the NDP's um, supporting this. Why would the NDP support something where the language seems imprecise enough 
to actually give the CRTC the possibility as an unanticipated consequence, if they want to start regulating user-generated content, seems from you know, experts like Michael Geist who say, clearly, this gives them the power to do so. Evan, I mean, to be clear, I think that that it's really important that we that we keep this very, very realistic and very honest. There is an exclusion. There is an exclusion that says the teenager with a TikTok video is not it is not going to be um, this won't apply to them. The Broadcasting Act doesn't apply to them. I just want to press on that. Section 4.1 of the Broadcasting Bill, which was widely seen as that exemption. I know there's another, I know there's other sections, but that was the explicit legal safeguard and it was pulled. Why? Because it didn't let any, any of those massive web giants that are, that are acting as broadcasters, that are doing broadcasting undertakings, it didn't put any obligation on them. It didn't regulate those big guys at all. So, you know, we're hearing all this rhetoric about this being an attack on individuals. This is actually to make sure that the, the web giants are being held to account, that they have to be held as, as the same way that our Canadian broadcasting are. If they're broadcasting, they should be applicable under the Broadcasting Act. Well, let me go back to Mr. Bruzen. Because when you took out that section on a, on a Friday afternoon, a lot of folks uh, called me and they, you know, experts and said, this is really dangerous because now the fear is that in trying to regulate the web giants, for example, the CRTC could, given this new interpretation, interpret tweets as a program. In other words, the language is too loose. I can't underline enough what, what, what Ms. McPherson just referred to, which is there is a specific exclusion that's built right into the act and has already been approved and it's in there saying that individuals who are postings of social media are not covered. And, and I, I believe that just at the beginning, you mentioned the same thing. Broadcasters like the one that carry this show are covered by the Broadcasting Act. The Broadcasting Act is broad. It does not cover content moderation. It's about the framework for, for okay. how these, these work and the contributions they make to Canadian content. What I don't understand is why the Conservatives feel like we should be creating such a broad exception for social media companies that they don't have to pay towards Canadian content. Uh, Mr. Duncan. Well, we're not saying that at all. And what we're saying is the focus needs to be on that, is making sure the web giants and those large companies are modernized and held accountable. But we're seeing through these, I believe, blanket uh, amendments we're seeing on it. Evan, just to give you an idea, one of the things that Conservatives are calling for, including at the committee that's reviewing the bill, is every piece of legislation has to get a charter statement to make sure it's compliant with the charter. We're asking now, based on the amendments we've seen, the ones you're alluding to in the last couple of weeks, is we want to do a new charter statement on right. these things to check about freedom of expression, check on freedom of speech, and uh, we haven't been able to get that yet. So to be uh, fair, I'm very Eric, anxious you, to you see some of those wordings on You guys did just filibuster the entire committee. So, so you know, <laughs> in terms of us actually getting a modern broadcasting act for Canadian broadcasters, the best way to do that is that we all work together, that we're all working to build a better bill. Uh, Julie DeBruz and Eric Duncan and Heather McPherson, I really appreciate you outlining this. I know the process isn't completed, but Canadians need to know this stuff. Thank you so much. Coming up on the program, who knew what when about the allegations of misconduct by Canada's former top soldier. Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period.
When it comes to sexual harassment claims against Canada's top soldier and the fact that he believed he was untouchable and had Canada's top politicians under his control, as Vance did, the buck always stops with the Prime Minister. But isn't it true that when the Prime Minister says he believes women, what he actually means is he's going to be covering up for the boys? I am pleased to see the member opposite highlight the responsibilities of the Prime Minister in these issues uh, because uh, there were questions and allegations about General Vance before he was even appointed to uh, the position of Chief of Defence Staff under the previous Prime Minister uh, in which the leader of the official opposition was Associate Minister of Defence. An independent review into military sexual harassment and misconduct, hiring a former Supreme Court justice to oversee it. Does all this sound familiar? It should. When the defense minister announced new steps to deal with these issues, including oversight by the former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbour and the creation of the chief professional conduct and culture, many were skeptical. After all, in 2015, another former Supreme Court Justice, Marie Deschamps, was hired to do virtually the exact same thing. And she produced an independent report that stunned the country at the time, revealing a military culture rife with sexual harassment, poor reporting, little accountability, and she made a series of recommendations, including creating an independent agency to handle reports of sexual misconduct and support victims and complainants. Guess what? Most of those recommendations were not implemented. So why is a new report needed when the recommendations from the old report are still unfulfilled? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Minister of Defense, Harjit Sajjan. Minister, always a pleasure to have you on the program. I want to start with this new review uh, that will be headed by Louise Arbour. And, and the question you've been asked, why is it needed? There's already been an independent review in 2015 by the former Supreme Court Justice Marie Deschamps. She made the recommendations. She talked to 700 witnesses who came forward. They expected change. They didn't get it. There were 10 recommendations, including for an independent process to evaluate complaints. Didn't happen. Why not just implement those recommendations and not go through a, basically a redux? So one, I want to thank uh, actually Madame Deschamps for really uh, putting a spotlight uh, on the Canadian Armed Forces and the the horrifying uh, experience that our survivors have faced when it comes to uh, sexual misconduct. And what that did is actually showed what direction we needed we needed to go. So as we progressed on making the changes and uh, and on those recommendations, we clearly have not gone uh, far enough. And the last few months have actually showed that. And what this is not just a review. Uh, and what this is, is looking at exactly what an external uh, process would look like that would give confidence. So what we're doing is taking a, a, a additional, much greater steps to right. find out what that process is by a very credible person with Madame Arbour to get that done. But, but, but again, Madame Deschamps made the recommendations for action. You've been the defense minister for over five years. This is under your watch. Why not? No more talking. Action creates confidence for the 700 people who came forward and got act, wanted action and didn't get it, why not take Deschamps' action immediately? No, absolutely. In fact, actually, the actions that we've taken when it comes to the SMRCs, making it independent when it comes to reporting structure, the, the, the system that we had in place did not work. 
So the recommendations that we moved on uh, have not worked. And the last thing we want to do is when things hasn't worked is try to push down a path that is not going to be there uh, for our survivors. So what we're doing now is to making sure we get this right. Because to get this right is important. Because the purpose of this is to regain the confidence. Confidence to come forward that you're supported. Looking at the investigative side of where those authorities need, need, need to actually lie. And making sure that whatever we do right now is completely independent from the chain of command and the Department of National but Defense. What do you say to the men, the women who have come forward, hundreds and hundreds of them? They never saw change. There's been 581 reports of sexual assault in the last five years. They look at you and they say, do I trust this defense minister? After all, under his watch, General Vance got an extension. General Vance got a raise. General Vance, who's now under a cloud of allegations, I know he denies, but more sexual assault, not implementation of the recommendations, now another study that they've got to wait for. Why should they trust that you have the credibility to make get this happen? Evan, one thing that from day one when I became Minister of National Defense, my number one job, as I told uh, everybody, is to serve them. And that has never changed. Um, I served as a police officer. I served in uniform. Um, and one, my main emphasis has always been just to look after our people. And to do the best that I can. And that's something that I've always put forward. And in this case here, when something doesn't work, you take action and you and make changes. Right. I want to move to a related issue. So the Prime Minister said in the House of Commons that no one in his office knew that it was a Me Too complaint against General Vance on March 1st, 2018. But the former military ombudsman, Gary Walburn, who will join us next, did tell the Defense Committee that he told you about it. And he said, yes, I met with Mr. Sajjan. Yes, I told him about a sexual behavior complaint about the chief of the defense staff. Sir, is the prime minister telling the truth when he said no one knew it was a Me Too complaint? Or is Mr. Walburn telling the truth and said that's he did say? Because both can't be true. So which is it? Did the office know it was a complaint related to uh, sexual misconduct? One thing, um, Evan, I've, I've been very clear. I've been clear in my testimony a number of times um, at committee on this. When Mr. Uh, uh, Walburn, the former ombudsman, brought the complaint forward, it was immediately acted upon, uh, action upon. And the very next day, uh, Privy Council uh, Office um, took action um, on this. And as we uh, have moved forward, and the Prime Minister has been very clear, he learned of, of this when it came out uh, in the media. No, no politician that, should I, ever I, be involved I, in any type of uh, but, investigation. Okay, I just, want let, let, I just want to drill down on this because I think it's important. Did Mr. Walburn, you accept that he's telling the truth when he told you that the complaint about General Vance, which I know Vance denies to Global, was that complaint, did he tell you it was a complaint that was about sexual misconduct, yes or no? So first of all, the conversation, as it, because it's important to put that into context, we had a formal meeting, as I stated in, in, in committee. Then he asked for to uh, stay behind and speak privately, which we talked about himself at that time because he was currently under investigation. During that conversation, which is right at the end of it, as we were leaving, brought up concerns about General Vance. And that's when I told him immediately okay. that has he um, taken the, this information to the appropriate uh, authorities. But that's when I directed him also okay that they needed to take it to the appropriate authorities and that um, uh, that somebody from the somebody uh, will be in touch with them and the very next day the privy council office contacted him so those those allegations could be looked at i understand but but we're, but he says i, I told mr sajin you that it was about a sexual behavior complaint so he's saying this and this is important he said 
Minister Sajjan, you knew it was a sexual behavior complaint. You passed it on. Now he says, you know, the, the complaint, whether it was described as a sexual behavior complaint, was went to Markey's elders, the prime minister's advisor. The chief of staff knew there was a complaint. Your chief of staff knew there was a complaint. The PCO knew there was a complaint. My question to you is, did all those people, did you convey to all those people that the complaint was, quote, a sexual behavior complaint, as Gary Wolburn says he told you? Let's be very, be very clear on this, Evan. It does not matter about what the complaint actually was. A complaint was brought forward about the chief of defense staff. And at that time, um, what we needed to do was take immediate action so they could be looked into properly. And that was done no, immediately. No, but sir, sir, it is important then, if they, no, but sorry, but at the same I time, Mr. Walburn didn't it's come forward but it, to provide the information um, to the right authorities at that time, which is the Privy Council Office, who are in charge of governor and council appointments. But sir, it is important because the Prime Minister himself said no one in my office knew it was a Me Too style complaint. And Gary Walburn says yeah. that's not true. You knew. Did you? As I stated here, the information that he provided to me, he didn't provide any details of, of, uh, of the complaint as I stated in, in my testimony. He provided me the, the, the concerns and I took that forward. What we wanted to do is making sure that the complaint, regardless of what it, what it was, that is going to be taken forward immediately and looked into. And that's exactly what, what happened here. And, 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 and as you know from that he did, what did, not, did not or could not come forward with, with additional information. Okay, I got to leave it there. Minister Sajjan, always good to have you on the program, sir. I re really appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Evan. Coming up on this program, did the federal government know there was a sexual misconduct complaint against General Vance? The man who says he told Minister Sajjan just that joins us next with his view. Who knew what when? The scrum picks up that. Our special guest will be the former Canadian Forces Ombudsman, Gary Walburn. Stay right here with Question Period. It's like Military Groundhog Day, another study, another report to determine how to address sexual misconduct, sexual assault in the military. Former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbour has now been tasked by the federal government to conduct an independent review of the military's policies on sexual misconduct and then make recommendations. But haven't we done this before? Yes. Former Justice Marie Deschamps released her report in 2015, which laid the foundations for Operation Honor. She interviewed 700 people. She made 10 recommendations. Very few of those were ever fulfilled. Do we need another report? And who knew what when about the complaints against the former top soldier, General Vance, the former chief of the defense staff, uh, in the prime minister's office? Let's find out. Joining us now on the Scrum, Joyce Napier, the CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Stephanie Levitz is a political reporter now with the Toronto Star. Congrats on the move. And our special guest this round is the former military ombudsman, Gary Walburn, who we referenced in our interview with the defense minister just minutes ago. Uh, good to see all of you. And Gary Walburn, I'm going to start with you. The prime minister has said no one in his office had any knowledge that the complaint brought forward against General Vance was one of inappropriate sexual behavior. He said no one knew it was a Me Too uh, complaint. On March 1st, 2018, you communicated to Harjit Sajjan, the defense minister, the nature of the complaint. Tell us what you said to him and your response to what the prime minister said. Well, Evan, I can just repeat, I mean, it's gonna be the same thing I said in front of committee. You know, I did tell Harjit, uh, Minister Sajjan, that uh, I had received a complaint of inappropriate sexual behavior against the Chief of Defense staff. 
That was, those were my exact words. That's what I testified to in front of the committee, and uh, it is what it is. Do you believe the Prime Minister when he says then no one in his office knew the nature of the complaint? Well, I can't comment on what the Prime Minister may have known or not known, but I know some of his staff were aware. I mean, his uh, chief of staff and Elder Marcus Eve was in front of the committee uh, not so long ago, and he was aware. So, you know, if the information got to the Prime Minister or not, I can't say, but those around him knew, that's for sure. All right, Steph Lovitz, you're, you're listening to this. There's a lot of questions about who knew what when. The Prime Minister says no one in my office knew about that. What do you make of this? What exactly did they think misconduct meant then? Did nobody ask the follow-up question, well, what do you mean by misconduct? Are we dealing with a Me Too scenario, given the climate at the time? And given also, Evan, it, it, there's some questions here about these allegations about John Vance, as we've heard at committee. They don't just land um, with the Liberal government, right? They start way back with the Conservative government. When the Conservative government heard rumors, had, had allegations brought before it, decided investigations were launched. So if you have the senior chief of defense staff and someone comes to you and says, there's this thing, shouldn't you also be aware that it's not the first time there was a thing? And maybe you want to look into whether there's a pattern of behavior or whether something is going on here. Like each of these events seem to be by the liberals and also by the conservatives are being treated in isolation from one another. When one wonders, was there not a pattern and why were people turning a blind eye to this alleged pattern of behavior? Yeah, Joyce, obviously, uh, as jo uh, Steph says, General Vance was appointed by the Conservatives in 2015. Even Aaron O'Toole, then Minister of Veterans Affairs, said he'd heard misconduct rumors about General Vance. Apparently, they were investigated. Still, Vance got the job. The Liberals went on to extend his term. The Liberals gave him a raise. So as Steph says, it crosses both lines here. What does all this tell you about the vetting process? And, and then when Mr. Walborn's complaints, uh, the, the complaint he brought forward came up. What does all that tell you? Well, isn't it interesting? You know what this tells me is that this case is symptomatic of what happens all the time. There is a sexual harassment complaint in the army, obviously. So you look at this very public one and we're trying to find out who said what and who knew what and nobody knows anything and everybody throws the ball to somebody else. So you look at this case and you understand what happened in the hundreds and hundreds of cases of women in the armed forces who either get raped or sexually assault, assaulted or sexually harassed, hundreds of them uh, since then. And um, you know, you think about them. So I'm gonna speak to the women to the hundreds of women that actually came forward in the first investigation by the first Supreme Court judge and said, okay, I'm gonna trust you, I'm gonna come and tell you my story, and nothing happened, nothing happened. And now we're at the second time, and now Justice uh, Louise Albour is going to go and ask these women to do this all over again. Gary Walburn, I just spoke to the Minister of Defense. He seems to understand the process that when you brought him that complaint, his job was not to politically interfere, to pass it on to the right authorities. And the Liberals say, well, if the complainant doesn't want to come forward, there's nothing we can do. And it seems that everyone's saying we did the right thing, but the system failed. What's your view of what needs to be fixed? And when someone like you gets a complaint like this, obviously a complainant's going to be terrified to come forward against the chief of the defense staff. What needs to change? Well, I think what needs to, well, excuse me. So the minister has said that today, and I mean, that, that, that is a, another variation of the story that's been ongoing for weeks. Uh, back to Joyce's point of who said what to when who. You know, what needs to happen? I went to the chief, I went to the minister with a, an informal complaint against the chief of defense staff. 
I mean, there were many avenues open to the minister. The minister went on to say it was an investigation, he couldn't get involved. There was no investigation. I was relaying an inf information to the minister from a member of the Canadian Armed Forces who had asked me explicitly to get this to the years of authority, and I did that. Now, what needs to be fixed? Is, well, that's an easy one. We just need to change the way we deal with these cases. You know, they set up Op Honor. I was there when Madame Deschamps came in and did the review. They set up Op Honor, and I started raising red flags, I think, three or four days in to that process. And I did it all during my tenure, uh, talking about the shortcomings of that organization and where the problems were. But here we find ourselves six years later. Uh, no one has listened. Uh, no one listened to Madame Deschamps. Uh, for sure they didn't listen to me. And now we're going to go do this again. You know, we need to fix this by changing our approach, not by shuffling the deck tiers on, uh, the, deck tiers on the Titanic. Uh, then that's what we're doing. Or maybe they can just apply uh, what Justice Deschamps uh, has recommended. And she recommended that the process change. And she even explained what, how the process should work. So why are we waiting another year, maybe two years, with another investigation when you already have a justice of the Supreme Court that has told them what to do. Why are, we, why are we studying this even more? We're studying it to death when we know exactly what the issue is and uh, they just don't want to act. Last yeah, but I mean, also they're studying it to death because it, it gives them the excuse to now say, well, you know, we've appointed an independent commissioner to look right. into this. And they duck any political responsibility for it, just as the conservatives are ducking political responsibility for it. And that's a real shame. And that's a real shame to, if we do the math, that's over a thousand women, mm -hmm. a thousand women who have spoken out about what happened to them. And you're going to turn this into a process argument, conservatives and liberals. You're going to turn this into a partisan fight. We're talking about a thousand women who have come forward here, and this is the best both parties can do. All right. Those of us who've worked in Ottawa know very well what a, what a study means. It means kicking the can down the road. That's right. It, it means delaying. I mean, the first justice came in and told us to set up an independent organization. Where is the independent organization? We had to go through years and years of reluctance on behalf of these victims to come forward because there was nowhere for them to go. So the justice told us what to do. I recommended the same thing. Many other advocates in the environment have recommended the same thing. But yet we find ourselves here today doing another study. It must just lather, rinse, and repeat. Right. We keep doing this. All right, uh, listen, uh, I really appreciate it. I know Gary Walburn has called for more independence, for example, for the Ombudsman. Uh, Gary Walburn, I appreciate you joining us very much on this critical issue. As you say, it does feel like uh, rinse and repeat. Uh, Joyce and Steph, thank you so much. Uh, stick around because we coming up. Border closures, more federally supported paid sick leave, tighter restrictions. What needs to be done right now to stop the variants from spreading the virus and end the lockdowns? The Scrum is back and our special guest will be Dr. Colin Furness. Stay right here with Question Period. Paid sick leave. Now the Ontario government finally bowed to pressure and flip-flopped and they finally passed legislation for three paid sick days, 200 bucks a day, following increased criticism for not having done it sooner, for overturning it back in 2018. That might have contributed to preventing part of Ontario's third wave. Critics are already saying, oh, that's not enough, that the Ontario Science Table has said workers need at least 10 days of paid sick leave for it to be effective. But should the federal government be stepping in to help and at least 
be a part of their program or expand their existing program and make it more permanent. And what about calls for more border restrictions? Are those really needed? To find out, the Scrum is back. CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief George Napier is back. So is Stephanie Levitz from the Toronto Star. And our special guest this round is infectious uh, control epidemiologist Colin Furness. Dr. Furness, great to have you back. Let me start with you because I had Patty Hyde, the health minister, on. And she was saying, look, we don't really need more uh, strict border restrictions. Cross-border travel only accounts, she said, for 2% of the cases. And the real gains are still not border restrictions, which are tough, but cracking down on community spread. Do you agree? I don't agree with that assessment. I think when you've got something like the Maritimes that have things really under control, they can handle a trickle of influx of new cases. That's what they're doing, and they're managing it okay. Most of the other provinces really can't. And to say that only 2% of travelers are COVID positive, I think is to just ignore the math here. Two rabbits may not seem like very many rabbits at first, but time, as time passes, you know exactly what's going to happen. We don't have the capacity for that. And our, our border controls are like a sieve. We could do so much of a better job. It's not rocket science, this is important. Okay, yeah, the, the multiplier effect of a contagious virus. Uh, Joyce provinces like Ontario are saying we need more border controls. A lot of critics are saying you're using that as a political distraction because you left too many workplaces open, you reopened too fast, you haven't enough, done enough to stop the community spread by kind of focusing on where the a vaccine should go. So which is it? Well, maybe it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's a little bit political. And I mean, listen, it's a good argument to say we've got very strict con controls for people flying into Canada in those four airports uh, that still have uh, international flights, but we don't have stricter, enough, strict enough measures at our borders. So what he's asking for is what? There are 14 border crossing, land border crossings in Ontario. He wants the federal government to crack down on those uh, uh, crossings and, and, and sort of do the same thing that he does with airports, in other words, put people for three days in those hotels, and the federal government uh, uh, mm. said no. But is it a political way? Yes, of course it is, because Ontario has dropped the ball, and we see the cases right. going up, and we see what's happening in hospitals. So obviously, you know, he's trying to divert attention to an issue that may be a problem. Steph, uh, what, what do you make when the, the government says, we've already got the strictest uh, border restrictions, even though people can domestically travel outside of the Atlantic bubble, as you know, but they say, look, you have to quarantine for uh, three days. We've got the hotels. We've canceled some flights. Do you buy that? Or is, as Colin Furness says, there's still too many holes and it's a problem. Well, there's a couple of questions, you know, that I'd love to hear some answers from from the federal government. Among them is the fact that that, that cross-border infection rate cases linked to international travel, that's barely budged for this entire pandemic. Hmm. I mean, it's been 2% no matter how many people we seem to have coming or going out from the country. And I wonder about that number. I also wonder about the fact that the 2%, as the doctor says, it's a variable figure, which is to say that we know, for example, some of the, the um, variations of the virus that are coming in, the variants, are more transmissible than previous variants, right? And those are coming in from other places in the world. So is that 2% number, does it even mean anything at all? Or is it just political cover for them to say, well, it's not really a problem. But the point though, I mean, the viruses are coming in from somewhere. And as Joyce, I think so accurately said, it's everybody's problem. And what everyone is trying to do now in so many areas of this pandemic is just pass the buck. Yeah, Dr. Fertens, I know you're nodding there because we, the variants are coming in and they're not coming in domestically, uh, but there's that issue. And then just quickly, if you could weigh in on the paid sick leave, um, has the lack of paid sick leave 
in many places been another vector. Uh, Dr. Furness. I want to be really clear about that. There is no question it has been a vector. This is not a hypothetical debate. I hear from people who work at Peel Public Health when they do contact tracing, folks saying, I knew I was sick. I went to work. I had to. I need to feed my family. At my son's own school, a bus driver showed up sick, knew they were sick, infected kids on the bus because they needed to get paid. This is not okay, and there is a lot of people living hand-to-mouth, and what kind of sacrifice are we expecting from them? We need to take care of that. If we, if we want people to not engage in dangerous behaviors at work, we need to pay them to not be there. It's very simple. And what we're seeing here is governments reacting way too late on paid sick leave, as the doctor just said, way too late, months and months ago. They should have been doing that. And borders, I mean, the variants are already here. So, you know, it's a little bit late to have this debate whether we should tighten restrictions at the border. We should have done that months ago, and we did not. Uh, Steph, does the federal, look, the federal government had, they came forward in the pandemic with the sickness recovery benefit, 500 bucks a week for four weeks, 450 after tax. They say it's temporary. It's going gonna, it's gonna to end when the other programs. Now the provinces is like BC and Ontario and others are putting forward. They want the federal government, though, to regulate more than federally regulated workplaces. They want them to actually have paid sick leave for everyone. Is that the federal government's job? I mean, why can't it be? I mean, you know, Evan, we've seen our way in this country to all sorts of leave for all sorts of things. And, and the question has to be, does our concern about public health and preventative public health measures, does that stop when the pandemic is over? I mean, are we not going to care about the spread of the flu? What about the next pandemic? What about the next highly transmissible airborne disease? Federal, federal paid sick leave or some role for the federal government in paid sick leave is, is potentially good public policy going forward. And to explore it and to and have a look at what are the effects, not only on the public health of, of Canadians, but the overall economy mm -hmm. as a whole. Will people, for example, heal better, be more productive if they can take that time off, not spread sickness elsewhere, again, beyond the pandemic? This knee-jerk ideological response that, oh, no, no, we can't possibly do this, when it's clear that this is a source of transmission, infection, which causes all sorts of other knock-on problems, is a bit short-sighted. Yeah, one thing about this pandemic, the lines between the federal and the provincial government jurisdiction, they are blurred. Uh, not constitutionally, but in practice. Uh, Dr. Colin Furness, Joyce Napier, Steph Love, it's got to leave it there. Uh, just great to have the three of you on. Thank you so much. And thank all of you for engaging in the debates that matter to all of us. That is question period for this week. I will see you back here tomorrow on CTV Powerplay, 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV News Channel. If it's safe... We hope it is soon. Hug your loved ones, and I'll see you back here on Question Period in seven short days. One thing before we go, I want to thank our senior producer, Ian Wood. He is leaving the job as our senior producer to become a reporter at CTV in Montreal. Ian, I want to thank you for your extraordinary leadership and your extraordinary work, and we will see you on the screen in Montreal.